This podcast was made possible by the ALF Silicon Valley Network, with a special thanks to our Leadership Circle members and our 2022 Exemplary Leadership Award sponsors, Cisco, Sobrato Philanthropies, Silverlake, ALF Class 18, Adobe, Deloitte, and HP Inc. Thank you. Welcome to The Dialogue. Okay, it's uh, one minute after nine, and um, I'd like to begin by saying good morning, good afternoon, and welcome, senior fellows, fellows, and friends. My name is Lyle Quasim, and I'm a senior fellow with the American Leadership Forum Tacoma and a member of the American Leadership Forum National Board. This is a special opportunity for us to come together across our chapters and across the country to learn and share about an issue that impacts all of us, public safety. This issue not only impacts us, but each of us, no matter our profession, has a role to play in making and keeping our communities safe. Please engage not only in listening and learning in the first part of the program, but also sharing through dialogue in the second part of the in the second part, and then take away your insights and share them in your communities. We are recording the main session and we'll be sharing the dialogue as a podcast and a video. I would like to begin with a land acknowledgement as a way to recognize our interconnectedness and responsibilities across history in our multicultural community today. I'm in Tacoma, Washington, and I'm on the land of the Puyallup Tribe of Indians. Others joining from across the U.S. are on other tribal lands. We thank the past, the present, and the future generations of these tribes. As we gather for the purpose of leadership for the common good, let us remember that to create a truly inclusive community and democracy, we must work to unpack our history of colonialism and dismantle current systems of injustice so that all people in our communities can thrive. I would also like all of you, if you so choose, to take a moment just to reflect about the events of the uh, most recent events in our country. Uh, and just think about that in terms of our conversations today with um, public safety. And you might just want to take a 10 second pause just to gather yourself uh, so that you can receive this uh, uh, event in the most constructive way. At this time, I would like to introduce Rick Williams, senior fellow and American Leadership Forum Silicon Valley and co consultant co-facilitator of their fellows class. Rick is a former CEO in philanthropy, and I will now turn this over to Rick Williams. Rick. Thank you, Lyle, very much. And welcome, everybody. It's great to have everyone here and everyone present and joined for this important conversation. Um, we're excited for this opportunity to bring senior fellows together from around the country to to begin a conversation. We're clear that we're not ending a conversation and we're not getting to all the conclusions and the uh, outcomes that were won out of this one conversation. But in ALF spirit, we're beginning a dialogue. And that's what that's what's so important today. Um, how this program is going to work today, and, and we're trying to be very cognizant of people's time, so it's going to feel a little rushed, which is really unfortunate with the caliber of people we have to speak to you. But the, we're going to start with a, uh, some panel conversations with community leaders and police leaders, and then we're going to bring both groups together and have a kind of a joint uh, a panel conversation with both the community leaders and police leaders. And then we're going to do breakouts and we're going to give you the opportunity to go in um, small spaces and have a, a dialogue about public safety and, and the role of community and policing and making our various communities safer. And then we'll come out and we'll do some group reflections on that and and do closing remarks. So it's a full agenda. It's a tight agenda. We're going to try to get through as much as we can. Um, but I want you to get a sense of how the day is going to flow. 
So now with that, and as we're just jumping right into it, I have the uh, pleasure of, we're going to start with the community leader panel. And I have the pleasure of introducing Lewis Cooper from the ALF uh, uh, Tacoma uh, Group. He's a senior director of security and corporate social responsibility for the Port of Tacoma and a member of Tacoma Police Advisory Committee. Also, I have the pleasure of introducing Darcy Green from our ALF in Silicon Valley. She is the executive director of uh, Latina Contra Cancer and co-leader of ALF's Justice and Safety Learning Community. She also serves on the Reimagining Public Safety Advisory Committee of San Jose. So I welcome both of you this morning and I really appreciate you making the time to do this. Uh, as I shared with, for the benefit of audience, as I, I shared with the panelists as we were doing prep calls, um, I'm gonna tr I have so many questions for them. I'm gonna try to do my best to, to, to uh, not overwhelm them and give them a chance to get their key points out. But let me start by asking both of you, uh, what are the communities telling us they need to be safe? And, and how do we merge the public safety desires of the various segments in our community in, in a manner that allows all segments of the community to begin to feel safe? And Darcy, let me start with you. Good morning. I'm very excited to be on this panel today, um, particularly this day of all days. Um, what are our communities telling us they need to be safe? First, I, I'd like folks to just take a moment and imagine, what does safety feel like to you? Um, and that word feel is very important because safety is a feeling, right? Safety is not something that is a data point or a crime statistic. Safety is a feeling. So just do me a favor, those of you who are watching, uh, close your eyes and think about, does your life feel safe? Can you pay your bills? Do you have a house without fear of eviction? Do you have strong relationships with your family and friends and loved ones? Do you have employment that pays well and is secure? Think about your neighborhood. Does your neighborhood feel safe? Can you walk to your local farmer's market or your coffee shop, ride a bike, play with your children and pets outside? What does safety feel like to you? I'm a mom of a five-year-old. And does, I think about, does safety feel like to me, armed libraries, armed schools, foot patrolled um, officers with guns in front of my house? Or does it feel like parks and trees and well-lit sidewalks and playgrounds? I want you to think about what safety really feels like to you. And then think about the fact that our cities are becoming increasingly, the fact that our, our cities might be becoming increasingly unsafe in the feeling of them being unsafe doesn't actually stem from crime, um, but actually stems from visible poverty visible income inequality, visible social inequality, all of the things that I just talked about that help us to feel safe, right? The things that help us to feel safe. Many people don't experience that. And it's at a point where it's so deep that it is, it's spilling over in our neighborhoods. And when you, when you leave your safety of your neighborhood or your house and you go to work or you go to a coffee shop or you're going to a, a grocery store and you're seeing such visible poverty around, it starts to make you feel unsafe as well. One other thing I want to add is, is in his book, We Keep Us Safe, Zach Norris, former executive director of the Ella Baker Center, says we cannot divorce notions of security from safety. People feel at ease if they are both safe and secure. Following this, our cities have become much less safe and more violent, but not because of crime, because of wildly deepening social inequalities because of income inequality, because of wealth hoarding, because of housing crisis, because of consistent defunding of our schools, libraries, parks, and because of the current rollback of our human rights, we all feel anxiety and not safe. So when we talk about feeling safe, I would like us to, and what we're hearing in community, and certainly what I heard as a member of our city's Reimagining Public Safety Task Force, is that we want to feel okay to imagine a world where our basic needs are met, where our human rights are valued and where social conditions create both safety and security. One last thing is in the people's budget, um, San Jose State University's Human Rights Council's people budget, people's budget, they surveyed 1,500 San Jose residents and they found this. Across demographic categories, San Jose residents overwhelmingly support adopting alternatives to policing with about 72 to 82% supporting non-police approaches to managing mental health crisis, traffic safety, school safety, and the needs of our in-house populations. 
A clear majority of residents supported an increase for funding like safety resources, helping residents meet their basic needs, and public resources for parks, libraries, and transportation. What all of this means is that we feel safe when our social conditions are just. We feel safe when we can take care of ourselves and our families. And when that isn't happening, and we're seeing that not being able to be possible for so many people, that starts to feel like violence. It starts to feel like um, being unsafe. And, and in many ways, that's true. And certainly what we're hearing. Um, communities have been demanding for a commitment to creating or adequately funding policies and programs proven to prevent crime and keep communities safe and also ensure basic needs are met for all residents of our city. Great. Thank you very much, Sarsa. That was that was a good way to get us started, kick us off, and, and good thing for people to hold in their mind. Lewis, how would you answer that, that question, sir? Well, I don't disagree with anything Darcy has said, and I think she's she's absolutely right on the money on that. But I want to I want to put a different twist to this. Mm-hmm. Communities of color have been asking for equity and accountability from the institutions that create an unsafe environment for people of color. The institutions themselves are four or five hundred years old. It was built on the backs of people of color economically, educationally, and we can never feel safe until we have equity in those systems. In addition, you know, I believe in my heart that we can't expect change immediately because this, we didn't get here immediately. We're looking at a four or 500 uh, years of institutions that were built on the backs of all of us, all people of color. So, Uh, particularly when it comes to the African-American community, we've been looking for issues around safety since our very existence in this country. And for us to be in a a situation, let's go back to the George Floyd killing. Uh, What we're asking for now is to be engaged in decisions that are being made by policing institutions that impact our community. For example, over the last a year and a half, there's been over a hundred oversight committees that have been developed across the country. That's because people of color and in, in communities are saying, we need to be in, involved in that. We need to have some ability to be in charge. We need to have some ability to make decisions on policing behavior that impact our community. When we can do that, then maybe we'll feel safe because right now we don't feel safe. And and the question, one of the questions that was asked is, what have I seen? What I've seen is people are demanding when people were marching this this new generation plus the old generation, they have been asking for accountability and participation. You can't police can't police themselves. I I just don't believe that. I've never believed that It's, it's an institution even though they've done a better job of incorporating more African-Americans and people of color in positions of power in institutions, it's still a racial, racist institution. And I had a black police chief tell me that to my face, no matter what you do, it's still a racist institution. I'm not gonna beat up on the police today. But what I'm saying is you can't be safe if you have to look over your back every time you leave your house. You can't, excuse me, even if you're in the middle class and you're black, America still says you're black. No matter how much you've achieved, you're still black. And if you're driving down the street and a police officer looks at you, or if you may be driving a nice car, they make a U-turn, turn around, pull you over for routine traffic stop. Now, they can't do that anymore like they used to. But I'm saying America still makes you feel unsafe because you have black skin, brown skin, or a different color than white Americans. So let's be real. Everything Darcy said is absolutely on target. But again, we can't feel safe until America decides they're going to help us feel safe and they're going to tell us to be safe. What child? And I'm and I'm going to leave it at this. When I was 11 years old, my father showed me the picture of Emmett Till on the cover of Jet magazine. For those of you who don't know about Emmett Till, you need to look it up. My father and my uncles, I had five uncles. They showed me that picture and they said to me, my father said, boy, you need to be mindful every time you step out this house, this could be you. And that's stuck in my mind. For all, you've heard all you've, that's stuck in my mind for the last 74 years. And I've had to do that with my grandsons, my son. And that's what other people have had to do. They talk about the talk. So we can't feel safe if we haven't talked with our kids about being safe in the streets at five, six, seven years old. I'm going to leave it at that for now. Please keep that in mind.
Great. Thank you, Lewis. Thank you both. Let me, and if I could have you, that's a great framing and I can't wait to, um, I wish I had more time to continue diving down deeply in both of those. Have there, has there been anything, let me ask you, if you could give me a quick one minute response or, or 30 second response, any positive changes that you've seen happen out of out of this uh, reawakening, reimagining uh, activity that's going on around the country around public safety, if you could give me one or two things you're seeing that are, that's positive that we can grab a hold of. Uh, Darcy. Yeah, there, there are positive, amazing things happening across this country every single day. There are people in a hyper-local way organizing themselves, building mutual aid. There are people right now who have been preparing for today's ruling, who are prepared to not abide by illegitimate, unjust laws, because that's our moral obligation in this country. And that makes me incredibly hopeful. I think about the moms in East San Jose who are organizing for for peace. I think about people who are resisting cop city in Atlanta. I think about the organizing happening in Los Angeles around Men's Central Jail. I think about about, uh, Silicon Valley Debug and Surge and those folks here in in Santa Clara County around our jail. People, I think, are, um, there have been many people doing this for, for this work for a long time. And there are more people coming around to an idea of public safety that doesn't center policing, an an idea of public safety that we create for ourselves, an idea that we keep ourselves safe through relationships and through building safety. It's not something that comes from elsewhere. And I see that conversation happening so uh, much more often now after um, what no one can can turn away from at this point. That is terrific. Thank you, Darcy. Um, Lewis, you had a 30 second. What do you see this working? Yeah, to add to what Darcy said, I see more people from a, a broad spectrum of diversity getting engaged and helping to make change. And that's critical for this country to, to make a turn uh, because there's so many people, both young and old, but they're from a cross section of diversity in this country. But that's what we're all about. And, and that's that's is as important as change itself in terms of safety, because they're speaking out as well on our behalf and on their behalf, because their communities now are being impacted. Great, thank you both. So thank you both, I really appreciate it. And and for the audience, again, we're just gonna give you a little snippets. We're now gonna transition to the the law enforcement panel. So we're gonna say goodbye to, to Darcy and Lewis for just a minute. And we're going to bring in, we have the pleasure of having uh, three people representing law enforcement. Um, we have James, James Gonzalez from ALF Silicon Valley. He's San Jose uh, Police and, and with the San Jose Police Department. He's vice president of San Jose Police Officer Association and uh, an LGBT community leader, as well as co-leader of ALF's Justice Safety and Learning Community. We have Chief Jeffrey Lefford, Chief of Police from Shelby, North Carolina, and a part of ALF uh, Charlotte region. And then we have Chief uh, Cheryl uh, Victorian, and she's Chief of Police in Waco, Texas, and is um, AL, and is part of ALF Houston Gulf Coast. So we welcome all three of you for this continued conversation. And, and you got a little flavor from before of how short it is, and I really appreciate it, but we're gonna, we wanna get your voices in this. So let me let me throw out a couple of questions and you guys can uh, 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 respond to those and, and, and lend your perspective and insights to this. One of the questions I asked the other group also was, what are we hearing from diverse segments of your community about public safety? How do you, how are they imagining public safety that incorporates um, their their needs and their perspectives of what safety means? Um, and then also, how are if you could tie into that, how how are we acknowledging the legacy of policing and and how and its effect on communities of color, as particularly as Darcy described, um, the notion of what is it imagined to be safe? So if you could. Uh, address those, that would be that would be great. And let me start with Chief Leppert. Let me want you go first. Uh, good, good morning. Um, so I'll, I'll try to make this as concise as I can. Um, as far as what we're hearing from our community as it relates to change, uh, the first thing they want is they want us to continue our conversations. Um, we, we were fortunate here in our city that we started these dialogues well before anything happened. So we've, we have built a community of, of dialogue and of conversation that ultimately took us into a relationship status that I think has carried us 
So what we hear from them, our community, is they want to continue that. They want to, you know, to know what's going on. They want to talk this through. But the one thing they want to be a part of, and I embrace this, and I think that a lot of people do, is they do want to see a change, but they want to be a part of that change. Uh, they want to be at the table, uh, not just to hear me stand at a town hall meeting or somewhere and say, here's what we're going to do, and here's the new things we're going to bring to the table. <clears throat> they want to be a part of that. And so I think ultimately that takes them into kind of what Darcy was talking about. They want that safety. Uh, they want to see it and they want to feel it. And, you know, I agree wholeheartedly with Darcy. Uh, safety is not about a number. It's not about a crime rate. Uh, if you want to see a safe community, go through and see the kids playing in the yard, uh, see flowers planted in the yard, see the grass cut, um, see people walking. That is how you gauge a safe city. So that's, what we're hearing from our folks. And to touch on your second question about the legacy, how do we acknowledge that legacy and, <clears throat> and build that trust going forward? One thing that we've done and that we have promoted is in order to embrace that legacy, we have to know it. We have to understand it. We've got to research it. So I think we've got to learn what that history was and we've got to delve into it because you can't fix a problem until you know what that problem is. Uh, so from our perspective, I think this is a law enforcement push. Uh, we've got to embrace it, understand it, and we've got to learn from it. And I think that change that we make has got to be a tangible change, but uh, it can't be based on our thoughts. It's got to be based on what we've learned and the conversations that we've had with, with our customer base. Great. Thank you, Chief. I really appreciate that. Chief Praetorian, why don't you take it up, sir? Good morning, everyone. It is an honor to be able to participate on this distinguished panel. Um, I am Cheryl Victorian. I'm originally from Houston, spent 27 and a half years of my law enforcement career in Houston before I came to the city of Waco about a 15 months ago. Um, so a lot of my perspective actually comes from Houston and the little bit that I know here from Waco. Um, but what I'm hearing from the community, as soon as I got into the city of Waco, was that that our community, they're looking for fair, equitable fair and equitable protection services and contacts. Um, every time, you know, we're in their neighborhoods, they wanna make sure that they're receiving the same quality protection and opportunities to uh, decrease crime in their neighborhoods with our visibility. They wanna make sure that they're being served equitably the same as we are in other areas. And they wanna make sure that we are not participating in um, inequitable contacts uh, with, you know, and racial profiling um, as, as police officers. And so um, just to piggyback on what uh, Chief Leffert has talked about, um, how do we acknowledge this legacy of policing? I think um, just before I left the city of Houston, we developed a program called Building Trust from Trauma, and it was on the heels of the, the murder of George Floyd. And I just thought it was so important because I'd run into police officers, my younger white police officers who didn't understand why the community was so upset with them. They were taking it personal. So I was like, it's not you, it's the institution of policing. And um, so we were actually working with a social worker who was uh, help working on a collective healing grant with us in Houston. And I got with her and I jotted down some ideas and I asked her to help us co-develop a class called Building Trust from Trauma, where we talked about the historical traumas of policing internationally, nationally, and then we brought it home to Houston uh, with specific trauma um, events, that traumatic events that happened in the city of Houston, talked about the areas of Houston that it was happening in, and then those trust building, we talked about the trust eroding events, then we talked about those building events in those same areas, what did we do to rectify those issues and what we're doing now to do that? So since I've been in Waco, I have had our team to go down and see that class in Houston, and we're bringing that class, Building Trust from Trauma, and designing it for the city of Waco to our police department in the fall, because it's so important that our officers understand um, the history of policing and um, that it's not them personally that is you know, that 
the community doesn't trust is the institutional policing and where we've come from and what we've stood for, and that we have a lot of work ahead of us in order to try to change the perspective of policing. And uh, I think we're on the right track, but hopefully we'll get the chance to talk about that later. All right. Thank you very much, James. That's a perfect segue for some of the work you're doing, but let me address those two questions for you as well. Uh, sure. Um, I'll, I'll go ahead and uh, Rick introduced me as, as vice president of the uh, police officers union. That that was seems like a lifetime ago, uh, <laughs> about eight years ago. I, I was uh, involved in the police union. I now do a lot of the community organize, community outreach uh, for the police department. But really where I sit is sort of at this intersection. Um, I'm a national LGBT leader. Uh, openly gay police officer uh, for a lot of years, and I have organized uh, demonstrations and protests, and I have been uh, in a helmet and received rocks, you know, thrown under my head at, at protests. I'm, you know, throughout my career, I sort of been at the intersection of two different things. I represent incarcerated youth uh, in juvenile hall, and I obviously had testify very, you know, had testified very frequently in proceedings, you know, putting people in juvenile hall. Um, one thing that I'll say is some good news and, and bad news. And I'll, I'll go back to, you know, what I thought was really, uh, you know, poignant Darcy uh, brought up on is, you know, what are we hearing from communities? We're hearing from communities that they want to feel safe. And the problem that we're having with that, I really feel is around dialogue. I feel like there has been a lot of efforts in a lot of ways we're moving forward, but people are still not talking to each other at the scale to make real difference. And some of the problems I'm seeing arising is police departments in different areas may achieve uh, a goal that is not necessarily shared with the community in response to feeling safe. And so for an example, a crime may fluctuate, may go down, may go up, and that may not correspond to how people are feeling safe. Uh, arrests may fall by half. Uh, uses of force may drop by you know large or small numbers. But are those the goals that the community are trying to see? We haven't sat down, I think, at scale and had the real conversations to understand what community safety is from police perspective, from community specters, and find some alignment on that. Um, there are a lot of efforts going on where uh, we are moving the needle in in very large numbers in places. You know, locally, we pass uh, you know approximately two new policies at the police department a year. I mean, I'm sorry, a week, two a week. It's really more than officers are able to digest and really fully understand. But is that is that really the goal? Right? Is it policy changes that we're trying to to uh, affect? Um, I would really like to see us. Uh, get into spaces with the community where we can fully understand that. I'll give you another example, alternatives to policing. Uh, we're doing the, a lot of those uh, here. Uh, they're not moving as fast as a lot of people would think, but I think one of the fundamental problems with some of those efforts is the goal of what we're trying to achieve. Alternatives to policing are not, and I'll you know tell you academically, internally, do not necessarily have a strong likelihood of reducing officer-involved shootings. Is that the goal? We should talk about that, right? And we should understand what was what, happening because I think there's misalignment on, on what uh, is possible and what's going on and, and uh, dialogue could help us uh, uh, get to that. Um, and to answer the last question, acknowledging you know the history of policing, uh, Rick Williams in his former capacity uh, got us funding to do what I think is transformative work in policing. And we have 40% of our officers now who have spent 40 hours uh, after they graduate the police academy at a college where they learn the history of policing. Uh, they relearn the history of America and the impacts on community of color. Um, understanding uh, what you inherit when you put on the uniform is something that most police officers just don't fully understand. Uh, I think it's an effort that every police department around the country should undertake. Great. Thank you both. Or all three of you. That's terrific. Um, are we I want to, you touched on a lot of positive, James, and I want to make sure I give both chiefs a chance. Is there, do you guys have a couple things that you're, that you can identify for the audience about positive trends that you've seen since in the, over the last couple of years? Chief, I, I can tell you from, from our perspective, one of the, the more positive that, that we have seen here is our recruiting, is the officers that are coming in to the profession, uh, they're coming in to make a change. Um, we hired one class uh, just about a year and a half ago. And when you asked them, why did you get into policing? They said George Floyd. 
They got into the profession because they said, we've seen this happen and we want to be the difference. We want to be a part of this change. So you hear nationally about officers exiting. You know, they want to highlight that. They want to talk about, well, people are getting out of the business. Okay, that's fine. They didn't want to be a part of that change. But I think we've also got to talk about those people that are getting into this profession just to make a difference. And then I think that is so cool to see them that they want to get in and be to be a part of that. So that's one of the more positive changes that we have seen yes. here. Um, and I think the other one has just been the, the fact that they are embracing change. We have done a lot of classroom and a lot of speaking on our profession evolves. It's always changed. I mean, you think back, and I, I know my colleagues that are on here, you can tell you law enforcement has changed within our industry. I mean, we went from, you know, all kind of different equipment, new stuff. And I think the example that we gave to our staff was if you go back into the 50s and look how you cut grass, you did it with one of those little push things that I don't know the name of it, you know, that didn't have a motor on it. Uh, but today it's a zero turn with an air ride seat. We still cut grass. We just do it differently. And that's what we've got to look at in law enforcement. You know, we've got to change how we do things, it's got to continually improve. So we've seen that. That's some of the positive that uh, that we have been able to note. Great. Thank you. Uh, Chief Victoria? So I'd like to say, um, you know, leadership starts from the top. Everybody knows that uh, leaders create the environment, right, and the culture of their organizations. And unfortunately or fortunately in law enforcement, we've seen a lot of changes at the top. And people who are applying, just like Chief Leverage just talked about, um, for the, our recruiting and our incoming police officers, people who are wanting to go into these tough uh, positions where they know they have an opportunity to build trust are those people that want to be there and want to make those connections. There's something I'd like to share with, with the group that, you know, maybe this can be a different uh, panel, but um, there's, there's a, a method for building trust that I got from one of my former bosses from Chief Art Acevedo, and it's called, the philosophy is called relational policing, and the tenets of relational policing spell out the word treat, T-R-E-E-A-T, right? And that's the police being transparent. That's us being respectful. That's us being engaging. And with those engagements come building emotional capital. And then, of course, holding ourselves accountable, taking ownership, making, um, when we're talking about accountability, making changes immediately uh, and, and to make sure that we are holding ourselves accountable and that transparency, respect, engagement, building that emotional capital with our communities by, you know, having them to come up close for us. Because it's hard. We always hear it's hard to hate up close. But I want to change that and say it's easier to love and accept each other if we're up close and learning about one another. Um, that engagement builds that emotional capital and accountability, which builds that last T, which is trust. Great. Thank you both very much. All three of you very much. That, that was great. So now we're going to bring everyone together in the magic of, of Zoom. We're going to bring the full panel together and and uh, take a few minutes to have a joint conversation. Thanks. So um, I, you guys have been terrific. So first of all, let me say that, and I hope um, in the debrief people have a chance to to reflect on some of the amazing things you guys have have shared with them. If we could um, kick this off, I had a question, but I I was really touched by uh, Chief Victorian's statement of um, it's easier to, the closer you are, the easier it is for you to love. Um, turning that around from staying close, it's easier to avoid hate. Um, so based on your experience and real, and real briefly, and I, I apologize for that, I hate even just keep having to say that. Um, are we prepared to have the conversation that gets people close enough to to talk about what a safe community looks like and how we can get close enough to be loved. And are we prepared to have policing be seeing these new recruits on the police side and at the leadership? How do we get them out front so community members can feel that there is some change and they don't just hear the, the stories on the other side? So how, how, how do we take this next step? What is it? What needs to happen so that we can get, as James was saying, an alignment between 
our the community's shared vision of what safety looks like and what police's shared vision of what safety looks like. How do we pull those together? And I'll just throw it out there for you guys to jump on quickly, but do staccato answers and then we'll kick it around and, and um, see what you guys have to say about that. I'll start off. Go ahead. Uh, you know, um, as law enforcement pro- professionals, there are so many organizations that we have. One of the main organizations is International Association of Chiefs of Police, right? We have to be courageous enough. And there are still many of us that are not, and I'm, I'm not including, I'm including me in that bunch because I'm a police chief, but there are many of us who are still not comfortable being uncomfortable having those conversations. Um, I have, and, you know, and make see that this is a little personal for me, but I have put in a proposal to have this tough conversation and to work with the social worker to do a presentation at the upcoming International Associations of Chiefs of Police Conference, and our proposal was denied. And it's a huge conference with many panels, and it was denied. And you know, nobody is in a position to tell me why that was denied. But the conclusion I came to was because the proposal was just, it was honest and authentic. And I said, we're going to have to have, the first thing our police chiefs are going to need is the courage to even have the conversation. And I don't know if that will turn pick anybody one off, but we're going to have to make changes at the national level and at these conventions um, and, and share these ideas and be comfortable being uncomfortable. Thank you so much. Can I add, can I add something Because yeah. <laughs> um, I, I think, um, and, and um, Cheryl, I've really enjoyed your comments and this sparked something for me that we talked about in our prep meeting and that any serious conversation around closeness and proximity and, and respect and being able to have communal love like that has to start with acknowledging that policing is violent. Mm-hmm. It is violent. It involves weapons. It involves guns it escalates. It is also violence. It's violence coming from a different place, but it is still violence in our neighborhood. So when we want to have conversations around ridding our communities of guns and violence, we have to somehow address and account for policing in that space. And I think that's the uncomfortable conversation. I don't view it as uncomfortable, but I think that's the conversation that that I would like to have as a community member is there are many, 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 many ways to address safety. There are many interventions we could possibly use for addressing safety. And we have kind of doubled down on the one that is um, that uses violence that poses the most risk to human life um, when there are other things we could choose. So how do we, how do we get around the, the fact that for many officers and from what I've heard from officers who I've spoken to, the fact still remains that you need to be able to go home to your family, right? You need to be able to go home at the end of the day. And, and because of that, some officers I've spoken to have said, you have to view most people, all people as potential violent threats, that anybody could be somebody with a gun, anybody could be somebody who might harm you. And so how do we reconcile the fact that pol- policing is, can, must be inherently violent because of that need to keep um, people safe? How, could, how can we create policing that isn't violent? Um, and so if we accept policing as an intervention, then we have to also accept that it will be disproportionately violent to black and brown people, to unhoused people, to trans folk, to queer folk, to foster youth, to victims of gender violence, mm-hmm. to it will be it will be disproportionately violent to some people. So I feel like to accept policing as violence means that we are accepting violence in some ways and disproportionately to marginalized groups. I don't know how we reconcile that. Great comment. Thank you. Any thoughts? I'm just keeping it open. I think I think it's interesting. The we're having a national dialogue, and more than ever, policing is being talked about on a national level. But policing is a hyper local activity, and it it varies widely. Communities are so different from across the country. Policing is so different. The education level, the amount of training, the amount of pay, the amount of accountability varies so widely from city to city across the United States. It's almost unrecognizable as the same profession from city to city. Obviously, communities are very, very different. And so I think it's important that we have these national conversations to understand where we are as a, as a country and as a whole. But really, this is a local issue. And the local dialogues, to me, and the local conversations are the most important. And if we understand where we are locally and where we're trying to get, and also be able to acknowledge that if in your community, you have made 
you know, large strides, but you aren't net, you are not yet where you want to be, which is a very different place that you can acknowledge that a frustration I hear from police officers is we don't know where the goalpost is. Mm -hmm. We don't know where we're trying to get. And so no matter how much progress is made in your particular area, that may not be enough, but it may be, you know, far beyond anyone's expectations or, or, you know, capacity. So we need to really acknowledge when we've made moves and we, we need to acknowledge that from a position of knowing, you know, where you are locally. That's great. And so let me, in a little bit of time we have, since we have all of you as this, for the senior fellows that are listening, what, what would you like to see from them? What what can they do? How can they be a part of this dialogue in, in each of their communities? And James, you just talked about how it's hyper-local. So we have all these chapters. Any words of wisdoms for how they can get involved and engaged in making communities safe? I think someone from mine is for uh, engagement. And I've noticed uh, Robbie Howe is on here and Greg and some others from our region uh, for instance, when we're having community dialogue and we have community meetings, uh, they come to those. Uh, they they drive in from out to be a part of, of the conversations that we're having. So I think that engagement, as we learn, uh, I think we learn together. And I think we just expand that network. So, you know, getting involved and, and get, you know, I guess the more engagement you have, you can be a little bit more of an advocate for the movement. Thanks. Other thoughts? I, I love this. I'll, I'll sorry to jump in so quickly again, but I, I will just say that the constructs of which we are doing this uh, re- work and reimagining and 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 being in this space are super super important, and we're and we're and we're doing a lot of great work there. But get outside of those constructs also, and actually get to know if you're doing uh, social justice work, get to know people on a personal level, because what I see over and over again is task forces and reimagining committees and things coming out with recommendations, one that are already being done and two that are not possible. And if you're able to sort of get out and talk to people who are within the system and out the system, I think you can have some real conversations in one-on-one settings that maybe the, you know, formal settings that things happen and you could improve the work that's happening uh, in some of these really, really important, uh, you know, you know, constructed efforts. Great, thank you. I'd like to just throw out a quote, um, Audre Lorde, one of my favorite quotes by Audre Lorde is, your power is relative, but it is real. And so there is always something you can do. You, there's always something happening in your neighborhood, in your city, as James said earlier, th- there's not going to be a sweeping policy change across the country that's going to, to better this situation. There's probably not even going to be a county or citywide policy um, that is going to better this situation. It is all hyper-local and it's all happening at a very grassroots level. And so our, we all have power. It may be relative to the conversation, but we all have the ability to act. And so that makes me very hopeful. And I see that happening a lot. And I encourage everybody to figure out the ways that they can get involved in whatever is happening very locally in your neighborhoods. I want to make sure that people didn't miss that quote, Darcy. Say that again. Your power is relative, but it is real. Audrey Lord. Audrey Lord. Thank you. That's great. All right. I would, I would add, Rick, that uh, yeah. to, to what Darcy and others said, use your voice. Use your voice. Be active in the community. Let people know that you want to be heard and you want to help make change. Okay. Thank you, Louis. Anything else? All right. Then I think we're at the point where we can... Uh, go everyone send everyone into their breakout so Mark's going to do that the zoom magic and then we we look forward in those times if you could take a moment to talk about how how your experience your community how your experience the change is going on um, in your area around this issue what does public safety mean to you you've got a lot of great examples what does safety mean to you um, how do you get engaged so we just love to hear give you get a give everyone a chance to have a dialogue about um, public safety in their neighborhoods. And we'll do that for a few minutes and then we'll bring you, bring you back and, have a, and wrap everything up. So now we're we're at a moment. We're going to close the uh, comments on the debrief, and then I'm going to give each of the panel members an opportunity to give their closing response, closing remarks. And I see Lewis is up, and 
ready to go. So, Louis, you want to share closing thoughts with the group? I know we only have a short period of time, but I had one comment I wanted to put on the table to the uh, to to my law enforcement uh, panelists. How do you know anymore if we're going to help make a change? How do you determine when recruiting who within that recruiting class is going to be open to that kind of dialogue? It's, and and I agree with what uh, Chief Victorian said and 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 Chief Gonzalez, all of you. But how do you know in recruiting the individuals you're recruiting, they're going to be open to that kind of change and dialogue? Because some of the recruiting that I've seen here, it's a lot to be determined. And I don't want to get into the dialogue because this could go on forever. But that's a question I'm putting on the table for you to consider as you recruit men and women, people of color to be part of your police force. My closing remarks is this has been a great opportunity. I'm humbled to have been asked to be part of this. And I think we have a lot of work to do, and I hope we can do this again to touch on some additional areas that we may have missed that I think open the door for us to become engaged in dialogue. And and I appreciate uh, being here today. Thank you. Thank you, sir. Um, I'll just go around. James? Closing comment? Uh, Thank you. Thank you for uh, having this space. You know, I think, um, you know, for police officers, I, I think we're getting to a place you know, hopefully we're more and more largely we can acknowledge, you know, the the very real history and the, the role that we've played uh, in this unequal, unjust society that we live in. And we can do that, you know, uh, without um, we can do that with a consciousness that that doesn't mean that that we're all bad or or that is a negative thing. And, and I'm just really happy that we're doing that work and, and, and more, uh, more police departments are, I'm very hopeful, uh, as to, as to where we're going, but I think we just need to really stay vigilant and talk to each other more because I think public sentiment on some of these things is shifting as we see crime numbers and things fluctuating. So I think dialogue is going to be more important than ever, uh, working people working outside and inside the system need to work together more and more if we're going to continue to make progress, but thank you for the dialogue. Great. Thank you. Chief Lefford. The closing comment. Uh, yes, sir. I, I, like the others, I, I enjoyed the, the interaction. I enjoyed the conversation. Um, <clears throat> but I would challenge all of us to this. Um, we, we all talk about change. And we talk about the need to go in a different place. But don't let this be a detour. You know, a detour is simply going around the problem and coming back to the same road you were on. Mm-hmm. Uh, we've got to change course. Uh, do not let us just detour off this. And when it dies out a little bit, we come back to that same road. And then in two years, we're wondering why we're there. Uh, so the first challenge is don't don't detour around this. The second one is we've, we've all got to not just check the box. Let's not just check the boxes that are popular and check the boxes to say we did it. We cannot program ourselves out of this issue. This is a people program, so our people issue. Uh, we, we've got to get to the hearts of people. So uh, uh, without that, thank you. I appreciate everybody. The panelists were, were amazing. I've learned something from, from all of you. So I appreciate the opportunity. Thank you, Chief Lover. Chief Victoria? Uh, thank, thank you, yes, for the opportunity to be able to participate on this panel. Um, you know, I'm going to leave us with three C's. I think that we need to communicate and we need to make sure that we are being cooperative and understanding one another and being face-to-face and having these tough conversations. And then after we get it all on the table, we need to start collaborating and determining what our individual communities need um, to feel safe as as we talk about public safety and also what we need in order to build trust in our relationships um, so that we can all to have a part in making sure that the cities that we are living in are safe. Great, thank you very much. And Darcy. My call to action today is is not to reject policing. That's a heavy lift and we also haven't built the social structures and conditions in order to do that. But my, my call today, what I'm asking is for all of us not to center policing in our vision for public safety, to think beyond policing as in our vision for public safety and to imagine what communities would look and feel like and smell like and be like if all of our basic needs were met and if we lived in healthy, strong neighborhoods and communities, what becomes possible 
with tax dollars? What becomes possible for our relationships with our neighbors? What becomes possible for our children when we can imagine a vision for public safety that doesn't center around violence, but instead centers around life-affirming investments in community? And and I'll end with this because um, we did invoke the name of George Floyd in the title of this, Who Would Still Be Alive? if we could imagine a vision for public safety for ourselves that's centered on valuing human life. And so in, in the words today of, of Mary Bekabe, let this radicalize you. Darcy, thank you. And thank you all panelists. I will real briefly, because I, I want your words to hang out there, but I, I feel one, one of the takeaways, so I don't want to step on that. And that was so powerful. You started us with the vision of imagined community safety and your engine ending us with a vision of thinking about what public safety is and and the powerful emotional uh, message of think about who would be alive today if we had a different vision. Um, the one thing I would add is uh, that was brought up in our group was one group that's missing from this dialogue that we need to think about for the future are youth. What's their vision? How do they see the world? How do they see policing? How do they, how can we engage them in what James shared is this constant ongoing connection with policing so that it doesn't become, you know, a we versus them. I think that that is a voice that we need to make sure that we get in there. And then the second is how do we incorporate in our conversation the concept and construct of uh, poverty, inequality, inequity in the role of what a, a, a safe, healthy community for our children are. So with that, I thank the panelists sincerely for your time, your words of wisdom, but thank you. Have thank a great you weekend, everyone. everybody. Thank Take you care. For ALF joins and strengthens diverse leaders, creating and supporting networks for good. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and encourage you to subscribe to The Dialogue on iTunes or SoundCloud. To learn more about ALF, visit us online at alfsv.org.